So welcome to the Tom Word Show where I interview the biggest influencers of the, in the world and the behind the scenes people who make it all happen. And we have one of those behind the scenes people who makes it happen. Sitting here with Ian from SeatGeek, um, Ian Worthwick, which probably no one knows you as that name. Is Are you just Ian from SeatGeek at this point? Yeah, I mean, I'm from SeatGeek. I like tried to, lately, like I changed my Twitter name try to maintain some sense of identity, but really everyone knows me from me and from SeatGeek in the influencer world. Now, is that bad branding on your end? I mean, say you say you so, go to Squarespace tomorrow. It's like, wait a minute, is he Ian the Squarespace guy now? Well, I'd say like whatever contract I have, that should be a, a, something I sell to whatever. I get my you know salary and then I should have a bonus to change my Twitter handle. Very strong. I like it. Wait, yeah. you changed your Twitter handle and kept your verification? You no, just just like the, um, what's it called? Like not my username, like whatever oh, appears. Gotcha. So I'm like Ian, at Ian R. Borthwick. You can follow me. I greatly appreciate it. But uh, the, no, I used to be, I was, so like when, when David and SeatGeek were obviously in the vlogs a ton and I didn't have any Twitter followers at all. The best I just started cloud chasing and changed my name my name to Ian from SeatGeek. So if David put a tweet out, I would make sure within like a minute I was the first tweet under it. And that would be how like I would gain that's how I got any initial Twitter followers was because it was all David, you know, fans who were following me. Dude, I do the same thing. I I cloud chase, like I'm friends with the Sway House guys and stuff. Whenever they tag me, I get followers. So any follower I have is just from the people I interview. <laughs> they, yeah. If they tag me, that's where I get them. So it works. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, like it's, it's, I hate doing it sometimes, but like it's a great way to get your following. And then you can try to maybe pretend that you have something more important to say other than like some pithy joke that I make about David. But um, that's what I've been trying to do. But yeah, it's definitely like, if you have an opening, you might as well use it. You know, there's so many good, you're, you're in the creator world. There's so, it's cool to see that creators are actually using their platform, not to just sell bang energy drinks. They're actually like Mr. Beast is just a monster. He did that tree planting initiative early this year. Uh, Amelie Zilbers is TikToker who's just constantly posting like social causes and, you know, things she's, you know, movements she's involved in. And I just think it's great that they're, it seems like this crop more than the old school YouTubers are kind of using their platform to send, you know, inform their, their younger viewers of kind of what causes they're involved in and what should they, what should they be paying attention to? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think it somewhat comes back to when you're initial YouTuber, I think politics are kind of the third rail in entertainment. They always have been, you don't want to, piss off a certain group of people even if you feel a certain way so i think this next group of youtubers understands there's value in being very very authentic to a specific community than trying to be someone to everyone and i think they understand that and they also understand that maybe they don't want to rely on brand deals for all their money who are going to be scared away from those political messages they are going to maybe making money off adsense off merch off their own products. And so I think demonetization coupled with the fact that I don't think every YouTuber now aspires to be the biggest name in the world. They want to be the biggest name within their community. You know, I was interviewing somebody and they said, Tom, would you rather have 
100,000 followers or 10,000 fans? And I really thought about it. Of course, the answer is 10,000 fans. But I think, especially I've got a lot of you know, aspiring younger creators because everybody wants to be a YouTuber now. I think it's so easy to get caught up on the number, you know? Yeah. If I get 100,000 followers at least, I'm nothing. You know, I, I only have 10,000. What good is that? You know, where you might have a strong engagement and you could actually do something with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it also depends on what platform you're trying to build it on. Cause I mean, I think the verdict's still out on Twi uh, TikTok followers and like what, how that's going to translate. But if you look at what, you know, Griffin's doing or Josh or any of the sway guys or any of these TikTokers, a lot of them are now pushing their followers to more long form channels. So I think if you can, if you can build a following, even if it's small on YouTube or on podcast, it is a, different level of fandom than if you're going into the Twitter or Instagram or TikTok world where followers are, you know, not easier to get, but probably less passionate. If you're willing to hear what you and I have to say, you're probably a real fan. Whereas if you just kind of want to see, you know, how good looking I am in a bikini, you might be different. <laughs> there may be a market for that. Have you tried that on Insta? I have not. My Instagram game is super weak. Do mine too. No one's trying to see an old bald guy on Instagram. But uh, so do you, well, first of all, how's your 2020 been going? I mean, pandemic, you guys sell tickets to big events, which kind of aren't happening. How you guys yep. been doing as a company and you personally? Yeah, I mean, 2020 is definitely a, I don't think anybody says it's been a, well, I guess if you sell maybe like sanitizers or specific niche industries, e-commerce is doing well, but yeah, live events, anything in travel are just completely in a, in a not great spot as for SeatGeek. So yeah, we sell tickets and I think there's two ways to look at it. Short term sucks. Like there's no two ways about it. Anyway, anytime you're not allowed to, you know, market and we're not allowed to we just there's no really point in marketing if there's no live events for people to buy so we've had to really scale back our marketing efforts and you can't do the most fun part of your job which is help people go to live events that's tough i'd say the optimistic view is anytime in business particularly when you're a ch challenger brand like SeatGeek. so there's some big brands in our space everyone knows Ticketmaster and StubHub this is kind of a great reset for the market in that StubHub and, and Ticketmaster are struggling too. And we've spent a lot of time building up our technology to be built for this moment and to be able to grab real big market share gains. So the early data we're seeing is that we're making strides that took us a lot longer to get in a month or two, even just on uh, the, sh the short amount of NFL tickets that are available the there's like a couple concerts like Harry Styles is on sale for like 2021 and we own that my job particularly is to hit that Gen Z audience and we really do a great job with them so when Harry Styles goes on sale we're gonna do well so short term sucks long term we actually have some really encouraging data but I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, it hasn't not been the easiest year now, the fun part of your job is kind of interacting with David on social, getting the text from him at 10 o'clock at night. Hey, I want to give away a Tesla tomorrow. Like, let's make it happen. There hasn't been much of that. Have you guys done any influencer stuff this year or, or since March, I should say? Not really. Um, I mean, we've kind of done what, I mean, David's laid low. I say what we've, at least on YouTube, um, we've definitely done the same. 
So now we really haven't done anything right now. We're kind of paused across the board on marketing, whether it's performance or sure. Google or any of that kind of stuff. So right now influencer is kind of just, we're hoping we're going to see some good signs in Q1 and then start scaling back up in Q2. That's amazing. And um, not to talk doom and gloom, you know, we just, I just kind of bummed out the conversation real quick by talking about 2020 <laughs> concerts good. and ticket sales. So let's bring, it, let's bring it back to the beginning because you, I think, first of all, you have branded yourself well as kind of the influencer marketing guy, not just for SeatGeek, but kind of for brands. Like I do brand deals. I have a small channel. I'm a small creator, but I do brand deals. Uh, Squarespace sponsored most of my videos last year. I have no idea, um, you know, who my Squarespace influencer marketing rep is on Instagram or on Twitter. Right. You know, or the other, the other brands, I don't know who the head of marketing for X brand I've worked with is out yep. there. Um, was it your partnership with David, I guess, is really kind of what put you on the map, right? Yeah, I'd say so. I started at SeatGeek. I used to work at a talent agency called Wasserman. So they represented about... I still do about 1500 athletes. So NBA primarily they've gotten into football um, and action sports. So I did that for about four years. And then I came to SeatGeek and we were really, I was the 80th employee. We're about 500 something now, but this is a lot of growth. And then they tasked me with trying to figure out how to scale what we're doing in podcasting. And, um, podcast was a very successful channel for us as like a creator channel. Creators have always been, if you think about marketing, it's very tough for us to go head to head with Ticketmaster to step up. We don't want to play their game and spending money on TV and Google ads is really expensive because you're bidding directly against them. So for us, creators have always been our, our X factor. So before I got there, we were big on podcasts and then I try to replicate what we saw on podcasts into YouTube, which Initially began began five years ago with NBA 2K gamers. So all the two hype guys now who are now one of the biggest sports groups out there, they were the first deals I did. Um, and then that was kind of what we did. We kept on adding more and more deals and more and more partnerships. And then David, yeah, was the one that kind of took it to the next level because we partnered with him about three years ago and he was big then, but he wasn't like, David, I can't, I don't know if I can cuss, but David. Yeah, yeah, of course. David David fucking fucking Dobrik. Dobrik. He wasn't David fucking Dobrik. (laughs) Like it was, he was a big deal, but it wasn't, we rode that wave with him. And we've done that with a couple of YouTubers, but, um, and that I'd say in that we were able to ride that wave, helping him make his content better. So he'd come to us and say, there's calls and and videos of it. I want to do this thing in the video tomorrow. And for us, it was a moment where you can either be kind of two brands here. You could be what not many brands do, but lean into it and say, all right, let's do it. We're going to let you do whatever you want to do. I'm going to figure it out with accounting. We'll figure out a way to make it happen. Or you can kind of do the other route that some other brands do where you need the time. You want complete control over that creative. And ultimately it was just, David isn't going to work with that other brand. So we had to be the brand that he needed us to be. And that kind of put us on a trajectory that was pretty amazing. So we've done, I think, 30 videos with David. They have like 300 million views. Wow. Uh, It's not a lot. Um, 
And so over time, their partnership has kind of become a meme or, or something that people talk about because anytime something amazing in the video would happen, you know, David would say SeatGeek right before it. And so while giving away a car has nothing to do with tickets, his audience is, is smart enough to know that this is this brand who's supporting David doing this incredible thing. And so we're going to support them because they support him, which is whenever I say it, I'm like, am I going to say it right? But that's how you say it. Because basically we are, we champion David and his fans champion us for it. And so that's what I think people don't get about influencer marketing, particularly is there's a lot of brands say, I'm going to go partner with X influencer and I'm going to tell them to write this exact caption with this exact creative because that's the way they've done it on Instagram ads. That's the way they do it with banner ads. That's the way they do it with display ads. That's what they do with TV commercials. So it makes sense. You want that level of control. But the reason why influencer marketing is going to work and ultimately is going to cost more on a per view basis than those mediums is because of the power you have and the power David has and the power these influencers have over a particular audience. So that audience, when they hear that ad, that ad's going to outpunch its weight because of that influence. And so the best thing a brand can do is lean into it and say, we're going to let you do what you need to do to speak to your audience. Cause why would us SeatGeek know how to speak to David's audience better than David? It just doesn't make any sense. So now you have to make sure there's some things in there that you need. Like for us, if you ever hear a SeatGeek ad, you always oh, hear yeah. code. So code David gives you $20 off. And that's how we track if it's actually working or not. So we, we don't go from it from like a exposure point. We, we look at transactions. Your job is to sell tickets and David's Correct. job is to help you sell tickets. But let me ask you this because brands are so focused on conversion, right? We ran this ad, how many people use the code, how many people have the tickets in their card, how many people actually checked out. You can drill in, which is great to all this data. But what part of it is, hey, I heard, I didn't even see the SeatGeek ad that David did, but I heard him mention it a couple times in videos. And three months later, when Harry Styles tickets are going on sale, I remember that and I'm using that. Do you factor that in or does the creator kind of get any credit for that? Or is it just as simple as, hey, I'm looking for this number, this percentage of people to buy tickets from this ad? Yeah, I'd say it's a great question. I think it's a question everyone in marketing is trying to figure out where there's one end of the spectrum is, yeah, we're going to run an ad and we have no idea if it really works. And the other one is, we're going to go too far in the other direction. And I think we do it sometimes at SeatGeek and we want to know every exact transaction. And if we don't have that, then we don't go forward. The problem is, is it's definitely somewhere closer in the middle. So there's ways you can factor in and try to like understand it. So for instance, let's say you were that person who heard about it later, but didn't hear the code. Every user gets sent a post-purchase survey. And there's a certain percentage of people who will say they heard about us on David but didn't have a code on their account. So I can kind of like, I can kind of get a little bit of those people. And then you can look at, you know, the pop and website traffic. And, but again, it's more of an art than a science. Ultimately you got to look and be, trust that David's paying off. And I feel good that David's paying <laughs> off. But in the early days, when you go to your CMO or, you know, our, our chief financial officer and say, yeah, we need, 
X X dollars tomorrow to buy David a Tesla. That's a, that's a tough conversation to have if you don't have any transaction metrics. So while I do think brands can go too far in transactions, I think you need to know something's there or otherwise you're not going to be able to have that conversation with the CFO and say, yeah, we should definitely do this. You know, I was always curious about the deals. Obviously, you're not going to tell us how much David makes. I can only imagine. But pick a number. Say it's 100 grand, right? So you're paying him 100 grand per video. And he comes to you tomorrow and says, hey, tomorrow's video, I want to give away a Tesla. For easy math, the Tesla's 100 grand. So right. how does that work? In essence, you're paying 200 grand for an ad that you just paid 100 grand for last week. So how does that all work? It's a great question. And I have separated myself from that question in a way of saying, David, what's the total amount of money you need? And he can take and go from it as he wants. So in that instance, he would say, I need $200,000 and it's his job. Because I, A, I don't want to call Tesla and be dealing with some Tesla dealership on how to like deal with that. I don't want to do that. Two, it's kind of all the same to me. And I'm basically, you can think about it almost as if I'm giving David the way I think David looks at it in a way I know like a Mr. Beast and these other big creators, they're getting a 200K, you know, production budget from SeatGeek in this instance. And so in that way, they can use it however they see fit. It's still the same to me. If they want to keep all 200K for themselves, that's their prerogative. But ultimately, these creators use budget, budgets from SeatGeek or Honey or you know, any of these, like Roman, any of these brands that are coming into the space, they use these budgets to finance whatever epic shit they want to do in, the, in their video. So whether it's give away a car, whether it's, like we worked with Cody Co and Noel, they wanted to do a music video. They call us and we helped underwrite the production budget for that music video. So I think that's how I look at it is we help you. Do, we want to help you do the most epic shit you can possibly do. And our money, you can use it however you want. I don't care where it goes, but it's all just one group of pool of money for me. I got you. So do you pay him more for the Tesla spot than you do for the normal just read at the beginning of a video no it would be depend so like with david we had long-term deals so we'd have we work on deals for x many videos for six months or 12 months whatever it was and then so that was like a monthly video we would partner with together the problem with david is he likes to live his love life unscheduled which is great but it's also so We'll have that one video a month and then he'll say, but wait, I need to do this thing tomorrow. And that's more of just a one-off negotiation. Um, so if you, if, if you gotcha. hear the Tesla videos or more of the Epic videos, those tend to be 48 hour decisions where David's calling, he wants to do this. Can we do it and make it happen? If you see, you know, a read at the beginning of a video in the first three minutes without the most Epic shit behind it, it was probably a monthly uh, long-term spot we did with them. You know, and for, you know, people listening out there, a 20 or a 48 hour turnaround on a crazy request like that is unheard of. I mean, yeah. you know, sometimes it takes me, you know, two weeks, hey, you got to get it to me two weeks ahead of time, you know, for us to approve it. And it kind of fucks with your, you know, schedule and stuff sometimes if they don't get it to in time and stuff. But to to have that direct line. Well, so that's the exact you, reason. So the way I like, I think about it as 
maybe music label is the wrong analogy, but we want to be, we're not going to be the most money. Like we're just, that's just not, we're not rich enough to be, you know, I don't know, the Chipotle's or the brands that are blue chip public companies. We're not going to be them, but we're going to be the easiest to work with and we're going to be the fastest to work with. And so you kind of have to know, I think, as your brand, where you fit in the space. And so we're going to be ones who our creative approval will be done within 24 hours. Usually they're done within an hour of seeing the video. So we are like, that's my team's, we have to be that because if we're not that, you got to pay up for it and you got to be a, you have to be a different kind of brand and where SeatGeek is, we can't be that brand. After the brand, when Cody Co and Noel want to do music video, we're in, they said the creative vision, got it. This is what we need. We can move as fast as possible. And so that's, I think, very important for a brand in the influencer space to know who you are. Because if we came to David and said, you know, David says, I need this in 48 hours and say, no, we need, you know, a week. And then we need you to, and we need about a week of approvals once our lawyers have approved it. And then you have to make these edits and you can't cuss in the video. And then you need to blur out everyone's face who's not sign a waiver. Like if we become that brand, it's going to be really hard to, to do what we do. So I think it's really important to know who you are. Do you deal with, you know, you kind of started out with those small gamers, well, big gamers, but overall in the influencer pool, kind of small. Do you even mess with smaller creators now? Or do you just say, hey, I'm going to deal with Cody Co and Noel. I'm going to deal with David and maybe one more. And that's my whole budget for the year. Does it even make sense to deal with, you know, smaller channels yeah. out there? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the sports, game, I mean, I will say those guys are doing like a million plus views of video now. So they are, they're wow. not small. I say what I would say is yes. And the reasons are one, when you're a brand who's targeted at a specific audience sometimes. So let's say there's this guy, Lakers film room. He's not the biggest creator in the world. He probably does hundred to 200 K views of video, okay. which is a lot. But everybody who watches his video is a Lakers fan. Every single person. If you're watching a guy break down Lakers film. So if you think about like, oh. if I partner with a Cody Co, I don't know. I'm just going to completely guess. Maybe 30% to 20% of their audience at any given time is like thinking of a live event. Because you have to have an event you want to go to. I have to target you right in that the event you want to go to is for sale. Taylor Swift doesn't go on sale all the time. And so, especially with a concert concert buyer it's hard to target whereas with lakers film room every single person watching that video is a basketball fan good chance they live in la and my targeting is like a hundred percent so every dollar i put into lakers film room is probably used as efficiently as it can be same with like there's like very team specific youtube channels um there's people who do like music reviews so like if you review albums there's if if um if Drake's about to launch a concert or, or a tour, I would love to be on the YouTube video that reviews his album because that's going to set me up perfectly for when the tour goes on sale. So yeah, we, we do about 150 videos a month would be our, our top line number. Um, okay. We've had about, I think we have 2.5 billion views and none of that is paid like it's paid in the sense we're partnering with the creator but not paid in like we're promoting it through youtube so those yeah. are all organic views on the creator channel um so we do a lot um and we partner with a lot of and we have a a, a brand ambassador program that's for people like sub a hundred thousand views wow um 
what about podcasts too? What do you think of that market um, versus YouTube? Um, do you find more success over there, more engagement versus YouTube? Like, how do you break it down? Do you still do podcasts or are you all YouTube now? Yeah. No, I mean, we were so, we jumped into podcasts as one of the first podcast sponsors like ever. So we did, we were the first presenting sponsor of the Bill Simmons show, which I think was the first presenting sponsorship ever in the podcast space. Um, and I'd say right now, YouTube is definitely growing faster for us, but podcast is like a massive, massive channel. I think there's two things that I like about YouTube that I don't feel this quite as strong about podcasts. And for the record, these are my two favorite, favorite mediums, because if you're going out of your way to listen to a podcast or listen to a YouTube channel, that's the definition of destination viewing usually. So if you care what you and I have to say, that's going to affect your purchase quite a lot. And the second reason I like long form content is you can actually tell a brand story. So like a 30 second read on David's channel, we can tell a certain story in that 30 seconds. It's a lot harder to do the same thing on Instagram Oh on yeah, Snapchat or on TikTok. So for the record, I like, I'd say the difference why I like YouTube is one, there's less ads usually in the video. So if we partner with Keenan JC, we're going to be the only brand in that video. Whereas in podcasting now you see anywhere from three to five ad slots, a podcast, which is going to make it tough for your brand to stand out. The second reason I like it is when you do YouTube, you get the audio and the visual so you can do it's gonna be more impactful and then you can also then direct people to click the link in bio it's true which is you're you're getting a lot of that attribution right there whereas if you're on you know if you're listening to the podcast you have to leave the podcast and remember to you to to, to use the url they give you or whatever code they give you so you're losing people there so and then the third reason is youtube's the wild west i and like a lot of people don't like it because of that. I think it's the best thing possible for a scrappy marketer. Podcasting, primarily, there's like three to five agencies that represent all the brands. Oh, yeah. And there's three to five agencies, maybe a couple more that represent all the podcasters. And so that creates is a world where it's very tough to for a, a scrappy brand to break through. Because if you're StubHub or your Ticketmaster, it's pretty easy to play in the space. You go to the media company and say, I want to get on all these podcasts and you're on them tomorrow. Yep. If you told Ticketmaster, you got to go and get on 150 YouTube videos a month and on good YouTubers, they all have different agents. They all have different people on their team. It is a coordination nightmare. And that's a moat. So that gives you as a brand like SeatGeek, that gives us a moat against our competitors in that we have the relationships. They're on our phones. We know what agents actually represent these YouTubers and which agents kind of represent them. We know what market pricing is and all of that because it's the wild west creates an opportunity, I think for startup brands and challenger brands, whereas podcasting is, it is a lot easier to break through. You know, it's wild as a small creator myself, I'd rather work with you than an agency because, and I think most creators feel like this, right? So you're right. You got five, five agencies that represent all the brands, right? If you don't like working with two of them, you're kind of fucked because you go, okay, you know, I hate these guys. They grind me on price all the time. They have a long turnaround time. 
a big thing too that I've run into is payment. These guys take 120 days to pay me, right? So, yeah. but they're, they're going to represent 40% of the, the brands out there. So I guess like I just put up with it. Yeah. Where I mean, it's, it's, I'd tough. rather work direct with, you know, you or a smaller brand out there, you get more freedom, but you also kind of can negotiate to one-on-one, right? There's a different program for each brand you're working with where the agency doesn't care. They go, okay, it's the same price here for the same amount of views, whether you're doing this brand, this brand, or this brand, there's no kind of customization. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think the problem with this sentence is most brands don't want to do it because most people don't like negotiating or don't want to have that connection. And so that's why brands have agencies. It's also, it's very easy to blame the agency when things go wrong. So, (laughs) and I actually, I don't have a problem with agencies. I think agencies particularly can fill a valuable niche, but I think sometimes marketers like to take themselves completely outside of the equation and totally get what you're saying. And I think the best partnerships are ones where there's not this game of telephone where to your point, you probably submitted the invoice to the agency. The agency probably sat on it for two weeks because so-and-so was on vacation. Then they forward it to, you know, the, the brand and the brand says, well, we don't do anything but net 90 days, but you submitted it, you know, 30 days before that. So it's really 60. It's just this whole thing happens. So a lot of it comes down to agencies. I think also being able to move fast too and understand that like there's humans on the creator side. So if you get an invoice, you immediately give it over to the brand and understand that like you have humans on both sides of these equations, particularly on the side where this is their livelihood and they're counting on this money and it can't come, you know, half a year later. You know, what advice do you have for smaller creators? Cause it's wild. You've seen all these stats, you know, I've got younger nieces and nephews. My kids are too young, six and one or six and two in, in a couple of weeks to be creators. And hopefully they'll find a different career path because it ain't easy. But you know, the person who's listening to this may be 18 years old or 20 years old and everyone has a podcast or a YouTube channel. What advice do you have them for getting brand deals? I mean, first you have to develop an audience, which is a whole nother conversation, but assuming they could do that, right? They've got a small audience, they're engaged. They need yep. to start making some money. What do they do? So assuming they have views, engagement, and they're like right at the precipice of getting brand deals, mm-hmm. I'll start with what not to do and then I'll get to what to do. What not to do is join some, I don't know, marketplace that basically you input who you are and they promise you brand deals and you're basically just like a an Excel row in some massive spreadsheet and they're going to get some really terrible deal that's going to require 10 posts at like an awful CPM. Um, Because those people are ultimately treating these creators as if they're like a, the same thing as a Facebook ad and you're going to get treated. You're going to get your CPMs are going to get pushed. You're not going to get paid what you deserve. So I wouldn't do that. I also wouldn't just go off and try to shoot my shot with every single brand under the sun. I would try to figure out, first of all, what's, what, niche am I occupying? So if I'm you, you speak to creators, if your audience is creators, what platforms, what brands are right now targeted at creators? So for us, LA Film Room isn't interesting to maybe, if I'm Chipotle, 
no offense to LA Film Room. I don't really probably care about LA Film Room nearly as much as SeatGeek does. Because for, for, for LA Film Room, those are all sports fans who are Lakers fans. So we are going to love it. We're going to view it with a much different lens than a big brand. So if I were an influencer, A, I think it's very important to occupy a niche. Like I think trying to be everything to everyone right now on the internet just is not working. And so the people who are really narrowly pursuing a niche where they can get, you know, those 5K, 10K true fans are going to be in a great spot. And then what products appeal to that demographic would be the next question I asked myself. And then I would go out and just try to figure out what does their marketing team look like? Is there, maybe they don't have a head of influencer marketing, but do I reach out to the director of performance marketing or the director of brand marketing and see what happens? Better chance than not that they're not really sure exactly what to do. And if you come up with this idea that is interesting to them, they might jump on it. But yeah, and that that's kind of how I did it. You know, I'm kind of a <laughs> definitely a niche, but I'm not the normal creator. You know, I'm older, but I'm in you know, interviewing younger creators, but somehow for some reason it works. But I did the same thing, you know, I verified on Twitter, so that kind of helped um, you know, cut through the noise a little bit. But the same thing, just the advice you gave, and it's the same thing I say to when people ask me that is you kind of, you got to hustle. And I think that's why I love, or I connect with creators is because even if I don't watch their content and I don't watch a lot of YouTube, so I'm not watching the vlogs or I'm not watching everything these TikTokers do. But the one thing I really, and I want your thoughts on this too, is the one thing I really like and I find in common with all of them is they're all self-starters and they're all hustlers and they're doing production they're creative they're coming up with ideas for brands they're editing they're doing all this stuff and no one's telling them to do anything you know they're going okay i don't like this brand how do i get another brand deal you know how do i get my first brand deal i got to go knock on some doors and figure it out that's why i really respect these guys what have you found yeah i mean i'd say i i view the modern day creator like the Davids all the way to the Cody's to you smaller creators is what the definition of entrepreneurship. I think everyone likes to label these kids as one. There's this like weird assumption that whatever they do is easy. And I've like never met anyone who works as hard as the creators that I've, I've talked to. They are always working and they really care about the product that they're coming out with, which is different than a lot of let's say media companies if you partner with David or you partner with Cody or you work with Casey, they are going to spend, they spend endless amount of hours tweaking their videos, trying to make them better for their audience. And they're going to fit that ad in. But these guys are complete hustlers. I mean, take Cody Kyle. I was thinking about this other day. He makes, so he makes, he's a YouTuber. He's also a rapper. He has a Spotify. He went on a hundred and something show tour that show, that sold out, you know, three to five K venue. He, what else does he do? He's a Twitch, he's a Twitch stream. He has merch. He's a podcaster. So that's a massive, like. He's a producer too. He makes great beats. Produce, like, it's just, these people are true entrepreneurs. And I think there's only in the last six months have I noticed the narrative starting to flip where you're seeing a lot of these, we were talking about before we, we went live, but a lot of these, you know, YouTubers, TikTokers, influencers are starting to launch their own businesses, which I think is like the next step in this 
journey of entrepreneurship and when people truly realize, holy shit, these people are entrepreneurs in that David's probably doing seven figures a month in merch. Like that's incredible. You know, it's funny. And I interviewed David and he said this, so, and I've said this story before, but so I interviewed him at his house, his old house, and you know how you have that pool table kind of as you go to the back door. Well, I interview him outside and we're done. I'm kind of walking out with the camera guy and stuff. And he's got all this merch. I guess his merch people were there. So he's got all this stuff on the table, jackets and hats and all this shit. And he just asked my opinion. He goes, hey, what do you think of this T-shirt? Do you like this one or this one better? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, this one. And I go, dude, I'm just curious because I have no idea. How much merch do you sell? I mean, is it, you know, 10 grand a day? Is it 100 grand a month? Like, I have no idea. And he said, and this is two years ago, he said from Black Friday or no, no, no. Um, yeah, yeah, Black Friday through Cyber Monday, he was doing a million bucks a day in merch. Yeah. I told that same story to Logan Paul, and he goes, he goes, I was doing, oh, no, no, he, was, he did a million total during those days. I told that story to Logan Paul. He goes, dude, during the same time period, I was doing a million bucks a day. And that yeah. just blew me away, these numbers these creators are, are doing. Yeah, I think merch is like the perfect first step. But you got Emma Chamberlain's launching her coffee. You have you have the the Sway guys launching their energy drink. Yep. You have David launching his his fragrance. You got Mr. Beast launching burgers. Burgers. So yeah. like as you they're gonna push further and further from merch into tech and other categories where the if you're a big creator right now, you say, All right. Hopefully, I'm not going to try to start my own ticketing company. So I'll partner with Geek. <laughs> but why should I part? I'm not going to partner with an apparel brand. I have my own merch. I don't need skincare money because I'm launching my own skincare line. And so you, there's going to be certain categories where you're just going to say, yeah, I'm going to use my own products. And then that's going to give you so much more defensibility. So when, God forbid, some controversy happens to you, the merch money can still come in. The, but the brand money may not be there for that moment. So I think during the pandemic, a lot of creators had this moment where obviously there wasn't a scandal, but there was a time when SeatGeek, a lot of big brands had to pull their budget back because we don't have anything to sell right now. And so a lot of creators use that time period to become more and more entrepreneurs and say, all right, how can I launch my own products so that I constantly have revenue coming in? so that I'm not in a position where I need brand money 100% for my income. Or you go the route that Logan Paul and um, what's the other guy? The Nelk Boys do, and you launch kind of yeah. like your own membership channel thing. I think everyone's getting smarter about how to make their money so they're not in a situation where they're completely dependent on brand money and AdSense because both of those things are very finicky and depends on like the broader market. And I think they're changing their narrative too. Um, like talk about the Sway guys. We talked about them before we started recording. All the guys. So Josh does a show with Dave Portnoy, which is kind of more entertainment. But Bryce Hall does a podcast with um, Pomp, Pomp, you know, yep. big investment guy called Capital University. You guys should check it out. But it's all about money. And then Griffin Johnson came to me and said, hey, do you want to do a podcast together? I go, what the fuck do I have in common with Griffin Johnson? And he said, no, 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 it's like a business marketing podcast I want to do. I go, okay, that I can talk about. So let's do it. But they're kind of 
the audience I'm finding as I kind of look at the numbers is very different than their current demo, you know, which skews very young and very female now. And I'm sure Bryce is the same thing when he's kind of doing this stuff, it's going to be trend more male and an older demo. So they're kind of hedging their bets, right? They're getting one audience over here to talk about this. And then they've got their core audience over here talking about something else. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right on. And I think all of them are trying to, Bryce had a good quote. I was talking with Pump about it recently where he compared social media stars to athletes and not in the sense, maybe the sense you'd think it was the sense of, the normal NFL athlete is in and out of the NFL in four years and they've made all their money. And then they're stuck in situations often where they don't have an education and they haven't built up a backup plan. And they're not in a situation where they have that, you know, they're set up for the future. And so this new crop of creators has seen creators rise and fall on YouTube and they understand I need to use this moment in time to capture, to set myself up for long-term success. So all those things you just mentioned are their, I think, moves to put themselves in a position where they're businessmen, entrepreneurs, owning specific niches that can, they can be protected in long term in case the TikTok fame goes away tomorrow or the algorithm changes and suddenly their posts aren't doing as well. I think these creators are just built differently where they understand that there is a finite time in the sun. Absolutely. And, you know, they're smart for doing that. And, you know, it's paying rewards. We interviewed, Griffin and I interviewed Tyler Winklevoss from, everybody knows yep. him from Facebook and social network, but, you know, him and his brother are huge Bitcoin um, traders. So we interviewed them and, you know, uh, Tyler got me all pumped up and Griffin too about Bitcoin. So I, this is like two weeks ago. So I bought some and you know it's up ten it's up ten grand in two weeks, which is amazing. But I was talking to Griffin. I go, hey, did you buy some after? And just to be clear, I'm a regular guy. I didn't spend twenty grand for Bitcoin. I bought a fraction. I don't have Griffin Johnson money. But I asked Griffin if he took advantage. He goes, dude, I was talking to him in March, and I bought it when it was eight grand. And yeah. I go, wow. So these guys are kind of in this circle and making investments that you and I may not even be aware of. You know, we're aware of Bitcoin, but they're involved in these startups that the average person can't be a part of, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I will say I was in at six, so I beat Griffin. <laughs> well, talk, talk about that too, God bless you. Um, you're also an investor too, you're more than just the seat geek guy, and I wanna talk about that. Talk about you know, your startup stuff and your investment stuff too. Yeah, so I do. Well, yeah, I think I've used this pandemic as we kind of got into in the more of the downer part of the earlier where we kind of when SeatGeek's business is what it is. I still work there, still love the company, but in my side, you know, the time I have on the side, I've used that to really pursue different startups in the creator space. So I stir, which I believe the Sway guys are a part of. They're involved, is a, yeah. Yeah, is a um a startup really focused on, so if you're, let's say Cody Co and all those revenue streams I just mentioned, you have like six different ways you're making money right now. No one is building the back end for what you're trying to, to see all your revenue in one place and to put yourself in a position where you understand what your finances are. Us normal people, if you will, 
you have maybe one, two sources of income. We don't know what yep. eight sources of income look like. So <laughs> Must be nice. Yeah. There's that. Uh, I'm working with this company, Fourth Wall, which is a really cool company kind of building what the modern day e-commerce store should look like for merch. So they have a lot of really cool features, but just some super basic ones, which I love. Like imagine when you're checking out on purchase, if you could record a message to the creator. So I'm buying merch from Tom Ward. I can record a message to you. Now this is the brilliant part. You can then use that message in your Instagram story to get people to buy more merch, which then makes people record more messages and you get these like little circles. So there's a lot of these viral loops that I think cool. you can create when you think creator first versus, you know, we're going to build a Shopify store that appeals to everyone. So I'm a big fan of them. Um, and I partner with a couple other startups, but everything I do is particularly in the seed seed or, or pre series a, and I'm looking to partner with people where I can bring my expertise because they're not looking at me for money. I mean, I am putting money into these companies, but they're not, the reason they're letting me into their rounds isn't that, you know, my minuscule check makes a difference to their success. It's that I can help advise the stir guys or fourth wall or this company one V one me on how to partner with creators, what creators are thinking and my expertise, what brands want. And I think that can be valuable because what you saw about five years ago was maybe the same wave, but it was all brand first. So there was like this thing was called like fame bit. There was oh, a couple yeah. of these. Yeah. yeah. There's fame, but they got bought by YouTube, but everybody was trying to create a, basically a tool for brands to partner with YouTubers. And some have done okay, but ultimately the, the problem was, is they were brand first instead of being creator first, which you're seeing this new crop of companies that the sway guys are in that I'm trying to be a part of is they are truly creator first in that they're trying to figure out how to help them as much as possible, not to help Ian from SeatGeek partner with them. Because ultimately, I don't want to use one of those tools. I want to work directly with talent. And talent is just getting more and more powerful over time. So I think that's what makes this group of startups much cooler and much has much more long longevity. Did I pronounce that right? Long <laughs> Longevity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Longevity. Well, I paid the big bucks, man. Longevity that I think the the previous, you know, crop of startups. So yeah, I, I, that's what I'm doing. And it's, it's definitely been a learning experience, but for me, it's, it's a great way to get involved in, in places where I feel like I can make a difference. It's very cool. And you talked before, it, you know, you're taking your own advice. You're in a, in a niche, right? I mean, you're yeah. not trying to blow up a YouTube channel, but Hey, you've got a niche and a skill set. I'm an influencer marketing guy. I was there at the beginning. I know it. I've got it figured out for the most part. I can do this wherever. If I'm selling t-shirts or if I'm selling, you know, soft drinks or whatever, I can figure that out. And you're staying in there. Now you're using that, leveraging that to get into startups, you know, early seed startups, which is awesome. Congratulations. That's exciting. Yeah, it's been really exciting. I'm definitely, I think it's like funny to look back now and I, when, I think you have these conversations with creators and you could say it about yourself. It's always easy to look back and say, oh, there's this nice, nice through line where it's like, yeah, you know, I started doing influencer marketing because I knew in five years that like we would go through this boom and then I could do these things that I'm doing. But ultimately when I got hired from SeatGeek, 
they hired me for something completely different. I was supposed to do college sports sponsorships and we never did a single one because of a whole separate issue. Um, that has to do with when you're at a startup, things just move fast and suddenly the roadmaps, Hey, we're going to partner with college schools to, yeah, we're not actually sure what you do here anymore. And so <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I didn't watch YouTube regularly. And a guy came up to me and he said, I watch, um, I watch YouTube videos. And I said, what do you watch? And he's like, well, I watch FIFA videos. And I was like, FIFA videos, this developer V. And I was like, really? You find that interesting? He's like, yeah, yeah, I do. And so I went down this line of like FIFA, but then I was like, okay, but the problem with FIFA I realized was 40% of the audience plus is in the UK. We don't sell tickets in the UK yet. So then I got to Madden. And then from there I was able to go, but I think I'm very thankful to where I am, but I think it's, I love, I love thinking that I had some really grand visions of being able to go from here to here, but ultimately it was kind of just a mix of luck and like you said, just grinding and trying to figure out what's next. This, this stuff with startups is the pandemic hit. I'm not going to be able to spend as much time marketing because we're not doing much. So what else can I do so that I'm not just doing nothing? You know, and I think that's great advice to kind of end on is your career path. You didn't start out when you got hired and go, I'm going to turn this college football thing into an influencer marketing thing. In five years, I'll be giving away Teslas with David Dobrik. and I'm going to be investing in startups, right? That wasn't it. It was right. more a series. And most people are like this, right? It's kind of a series of next steps. Okay. Yep. The college football thing's gone. I, I kind of like this company. I want to stick around. What else can I do? And I think that applies to life and it applies to people's YouTube channels too. There's this kid I watch, Jake Tran, and he does, um, he does cool ones. He'll do like, uh, I'm trying to think, oh, why, how Chinese, how the Chinese government uses beautiful women as spies. It was just <laughs> like he does like random 20 yeah. minute documentaries. But I look back, he only started doing that six months ago. Before that, he was like doing tech reviews kind of things. Right. And the views weren't great. And all of a sudden he made a video like this, like a short documentary views went up and then he's been making those videos for the last six months. So to your point, that young creator that's listening right now who goes, you know, I'm doing DIY stuff and it's not really taking off and don't get discouraged. You know, in, in six months you may be doing something totally different. I think it's important to hustle and there's an element of luck too that you can't control. Yeah. I think ultimately like, I had this moment where I, there was something I was really looking forward to that I was like, I'm going to kill this. It's going to be like, I was built for this moment. It's my big moment. And then I went there and I, and I did, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal this later on once it actually comes out. And I, I felt like I did an awful job and I was down on myself because it's like, this is this thing I wanted to do. And I did not execute how I wanted to on it. And a lot of people want to tell me, and it was just like a humbling moment. Cause you realize, yeah, but like, majority of the shit that you work on is going to fail the first couple of times. And you're kind of just trying to recalibrate, get your confidence and figure out what makes sense. But for every Charlie D'Amelio who just came on TikTok and just never looked back, there are a ton of other people who just, you constantly are trying to iterate what you're doing and make yourself a little bit better. I was talking to this guy, MMG today. Um, and he had the exact same thing. And his his growth looks like this. It's not like this like crazy exponential growth, but he's been grinding. He does, you know, 
four to 500,000 views a video and he puts out a video a day. That's a great, yeah. And he hustles. Uh, He's like a Madden YouTuber and he's the way he looks at it is like every day I'm trying to just get a little bit better, but I think it's very important if you're a young creator that you shouldn't set yourself up for, Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to kill it. A lot of these people have been, I mean, the Mr. Beast story is a perfect example. He spent like, I don't know, a year's just grinding away at videos that nobody watched. And now he does like, I don't know, 30, 40 million views of video. So Casey nice that too. I mean, I saw, what was the thing he did? He goes, I'm going to do a video a day for, I forget how many days in a row it was. And they weren't, successful at first but he set that goal as i'm going to do whatever it was 500 you know a video a day for 500 days or something and he did yeah. it and he got a little better and the audience got bigger and you well, know that's what people don't also get is like how great the feedback loop is it with now so like i could put something out he could put something out that day he's gonna get feedback on it that night from the entire world and then that next video the next day is going to be take that feedback into consideration be a little bit better whereas you know if you want to go film a movie, you're spending four plus years and you don't have that feedback loop really until it comes out. And so that's why creators are in a position where you can constantly be iterating and you shouldn't be putting so much pressure on this one moment because you know, if you keep on doing it, you can get a little bit better and a little bit better because that feedback loop is so tight. It's so quick. What else brother? We talked for an hour. We talked about really everything what else you promoting we got to follow you on social what are your socials yeah follow me at uh ian at ian r borthwick b-o-r-t-h-w-i-c-k just got the verification badge so i'm very pleased about that congrats Uh, big deal uh yeah I, i promote a lot of just influencer content type stories one thing i'm very passionate about that you'll get in my feed is just this entrepreneurship journey that I don't, I think people are just starting to get, I was just tweeted recently about, was it David's toy reviews? And he's doing, I read, he's doing like 250 million in revenue this year. Cause like of licensing and the ads. Oh, yeah. And it just, who knew a nine year old was making a quarter, quarter billion dollars. Yep. So that's what I'm doing right now. I got something big. I'm, I'm working on that hopefully come out in a month or two, but I'm not going to put any pressure and, and tease it here. Okay. You'll know when you see it. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much for hopping on, man. This is a pleasure. It's good to kind of see, because I interview the creators all the time and, you know, people want to see that and they want to kind of hear their story and stuff, but it's kind of cool getting a sneak peek from the other side of things, from the brand side of things, because without you guys, Creators couldn't create, you know, they, they need to fund these projects, you know, it costs money to give away a Tesla. Somebody's got to pay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what the right marketers view it as is kind of financing their vision. But I, I also, I think we made a good point of the, the marketers who are really just want their own vision executed and how that kind of can, can torpedo what you're trying to do. Yeah. Well, any last words, brother, or what? I think that's no. it. That's all I, I got. Thanks, well, guys, man. thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for hopping on. Uh, I'm going to start doing the podcast once a week. I'm still going to do the YouTubes, uh, just two big ones a month. But I'm going to start doing these uh, once a week on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe, uh, whether you're listening on iTunes, you're listening on Spotify or any other platform, make sure you subscribe. New episodes every Thursday.